we are in uh, towards the back end, the second to the last service for a quest for holiness. And we're looking at the ninth commandment. Let's ask for God's help in understanding his word and the catechism this evening. Heavenly Father, we ask for your help tonight because as much as we don't want to admit it, we frequently, frequently break this commandment through image management, not speaking when we should, tearing down others with our words. Father, we are guilty. Convict us in our sin. Encourage us in your love. We pray this in Jesus, our Savior's name. Amen. I realize it's probably not the best approach I could take as a preacher to start off by praying that we have all broken this commandment. <clears throat> but I'm, I'm deeply convicted that this ninth commandment is one that flies under the radar and one that Christians um, are particularly in the habit of breaking, at least a certain sec- section of this, uh, a certain uh, outworking of this commandment. And, and hopefully I could prove that to you tonight. We're going to look at our... Um, text in Exodus, and then we'll look at what the catechism, how the catechism talks about the ninth commandment, and then we'll look again at another scripture, Psalm 15. Exodus 21 through 3 says this, and God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And I want to stop right there before we hit verse 16 and, and to to remind us a bit of what's behind the giving of the Ten Commandments. It's been quite a while since we started this series. And the Ten Commandments were given to the Israelites, God's hand-picked people, to kick off his rescue mission. The Israelites had spent several hundred years in slavery. Through Moses, God calls them out of Egypt, reintroduces who he is and his mission for, for them, and begins this new stage of a deeper relationship with the Israelites. The key here is to know that the commandments come after their relationship had begun. They, these Ten Commandments are not rules that God established so the people could enter into a relationship with him. He didn't say, okay, do this, do that, keep the Sabbath, honor your mother and father, and then I'll have a relationship with you. But he initiates, establishes the relationship first, and then gives the guidelines, the rules, the principles for the relationship. They're not conditions for a relationship, but rather confirmation for the relationship. Think about it this way. Let's say you had just recently bought a puppy. And I know there's uh, actually a family in the church who's just recently bought a puppy, and so they could probably really uh, relate to this. But let's say you bought a puppy, and you don't want him to get lost or hit by a car, or you don't want him to bite the mailman, and so you, you put up a white picket fence around your yard. Now, you don't put up the fence and then invite any neighborhood dog to come in and be your dog. That's not how it works. That your neighbors would get quite upset. Likewise, on, on the occasion that you buy a dog and, and are a uh, dog owner and the dog sneaks out through a gate that someone left open, you don't say, okay, Rover has left the fence, therefore he's no longer my dog. The fence doesn't dictate the relationship. Ownership dictates the relationship. The fence is just there to help protect the dog and maximize your relationship with him. Well, the same is with these commandments. 
The commandments don't dictate the relationship. God's ownership in us through the forgiveness of Christ dictate the relationship. These are rules to maximize our relationship with him. These rules, commandments, guides, whatever you want to call them, are working principles, best practices, if you will, for living by God's design. This is so, so important. And I'm really harping on this because no matter how long you've been a Christian, there's an incredibly strong pull towards legalism where we feel we have to do in order to be right with God. And if we're not doing, then we'll not be blessed. God just doesn't work that way. If he did, we'd never be blessed. We'd never be able to follow him because we wouldn't be able to keep up with him. So in this series entitled Quest for Holiness, realize carrying out these commandments faultlessly to a T will not make you holy. But in a relationship with Christ, following these will help you walk in holiness. It sounds like minutia, but the difference is not trivia. So the first four commandments talk about honoring God, honoring our Creator. And then the next six talk about honoring people, including ourselves. And, and this evening, we find ourselves in Exodus 20, verse 16. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. And now I want to read an incredibly simple yet thorough explanation of verse 16 that is found in our catechism. And as we read our catechism's question and answer number 112, I want to... I think, you'll, I think you'll agree that even though it's written some 550 years ago, okay, this question and answer was written some 550 years ago. It sounds like it could have been written for our struggles, our situation, our culture today. There's just one question and one answer, so I'll, I'll read them both. We, we won't do it responsibly. Re- responsibly. Question 112. What is God's will for you in the ninth commandment? The answer? Listen to the simplicity. God's will is that I never give false testimony against anyone, twist no one's words, not gossip or slander, nor join in condemning anyone without a hearing or without a just cause. Rather, in court and everywhere else, I should avoid lying and deceit of every kind. These are devices the devil himself uses. And they would call down on me God's intense anger. I should love the truth, speak it candidly, and openly acknowledge it. And I should do what I can to guard and advance my neighbor's good name. I want to point out a few sections of this that we're going to look at more intensely this evening. Namely that the Catechism is calling us in applying the Ninth Commandment To not twist one's words. To not gossip or slander. To not join in condemning anyone without a hearing or without a just cause. That means we shouldn't connect the dots when the picture hasn't emerged. But wait for the picture to emerge before we render a judgment. I also want to highlight we should avoid lying and deceit of every kind. These are devices the devil himself uses. Let me ask you, when is it okay to lie? Is it okay to lie, ever? 
We live in a culture where truth is an inconvenience that can be generalized or restated to make things easier for everyone. We're taught by the media and our society to generalize, to cover up, to candy coat, to blame shift, or to sometimes flat out lie if it makes the situation easier, if it avoids trouble. This, there's probably no better example of this than when our former president, President Bill Clinton, blatantly lied under oath that he didn't have an affair with White House intern Monica Lewinsky. You remember that? What was, our, what was the media, what was the government through the media saying to us? Basically, it was saying, as long as you're still scoring high marks on public opinion polls, you can lie in court, you can lie under oath and get away with it. Our culture, without explicitly saying you should lie, really condones it. When the truth is not convenient, Let me ask this question again. Is there ever an okay time to lie? A little fib, a white lie. How about this scenario? I'm sure it has happened to all of us. Your spouse or one of your friends has just come back from getting a haircut, and as they walk in the door, you're dreading this question because you're, you're, you're guessing that whoever cut their hair must have had dark sunglasses on at the time. And they, they, the words come out of their mouths. Do you like my new haircut? What do you say? Well, it's a whole lot easier for everyone if you just fib a little bit. If you say, yeah, honey, it looks great. Discussion over. No problems, no trouble. What does it mean to tell the truth here? How would the catechism in the Bible address this? Well, maybe what would be better is something like this. If it's a spouse or a boyfriend or a girlfriend, you could say, honestly, honey, it's not one of my favorites, but you're beautiful to me. Or if you're really smooth, I like you for who you are, not your haircut. If you like it, that's all that matters. You know, I, I personally like the last haircut better, but it's not what I like. It's your hair. How about that? The biblical standard for truth-telling is anything apart from complete honesty is deceit. And deceit, like every other kind of sin, brings death to the good things that God has given us. Deceit can kill relationships. It can kill reputations. It can deaden intimacy and trust. It can even kill our self-esteem and self-image. Even the smallest fib, even the whitest lie can rob us from experiencing the real abundant life that Jesus calls us to. I want to show you how that happens tonight. But before we do, I want to start off with this clear distinction about living completely honest, honestly. Telling the truth is not fact-telling. My three-year-old is great at fact-telling. In fact, uh, I was really nervous not too long ago. I was at the mall, at the food court mall, and I propped Phoebe up on the counter. And uh, I'm, I put in our order. It was at Panda Express. And Phoebe decides to just blurt this out. She says to the woman taking our order, you smell like, I'm like, oh no, where is she going with this? And then she said, cookies. And I was like, oh, phew. 
Truth-telling is not fact-telling. I think the biggest obstacle that keeps people from accepting the idea of complete honesty is that they've seen too many ungraceful appliers of complete honesty. People who are so blunt and so frank that the truth not only hurts the other people, but it does damage and leaves scars. Truth-telling isn't about telling all the facts. It's not about saying exactly what's on our mind. It's not about vomiting our opinion. It's about being straight up with people, being real, authentic, and following Jesus' example of being full of grace and full of truth. First of all, what is included with lying? The Catechism does a great job uh, supplying a very vast uh, application to it. And I think it, th- that's, that's right. The Ninth Commandment includes much of the duplicity that goes on even in Christians' lives. For instance, have you ever found yourself in any of these situations? And uh, I'm taking these from a, a fascinating little book called I Quit, Stop Pretending Everything is Fine and Change Your Life. It's, uh, it has a, a pretty neat section on, on lying. Have you ever found yourself in one of these situations? You greet someone with a big smile and a hug, but the truth is you can't stand this person. That's duplicity. You say, we're just doing fine in our marriage, when the relationship can be best described as icy and cold. Duplicity, falsehood. You say, I'm doing well. It didn't bother me that I lost my job. I'm not worried. But inside, you're petrified, afraid for the future. You say, I think you did a great job when you actually think the performance was adequate at best. You say, oh, I can't come right now. I'm too busy. When the truth is, you just don't want to attend. Lying in pretense, duplicity like that, is so subtle and so ingrained in our culture, even in our Christian culture, because we're encouraged to be nice. We're encouraged not to rock the boat. And oftentimes, that draws us to being fake, insincere, disingenuine, and therefore deceitful and hypocritical. Duplicity, hypocrisy are both forms of lying. The Catechism says, rather in court and everywhere else, I should avoid lying and deceit of every kind. These are devices the devil himself uses. Why is the Bible and the Catechism so cut and dry about lying? Why does it apply such a a wide application? Because lying kills things, good things. First, lying deceit, it deadens the freedom in our relationship. I want to talk about this in in two uh, really mundane, everyday life kinds of applications. First one's me, Um, and then another one's from a a friend of mine. When I was in high school, a junior in high school, my beginning of my junior year, I got accepted into the National Honor Society. Now, um, I, I, I went to a public school, and, and this was a, a National Honor Society. Was a, does Timothy High School have National Honor Society as well? Yeah, I get some nods, yeah. Okay. All right, well, so you're, you're familiar. And, and so this was a big 
thing. My, my parents were real proud. I got into the National Honor Society. Now, if you know anything about the National Honor Society, that once you get in, you, that doesn't mean you're a guaranteed member for life. In fact, uh, you've got to keep up your grades and keep up your, you know, all the other stipulations, attendance and, and uh, uh, you know, good behavior and all that stuff. And uh, for, uh, through until your, your graduation, the close of your senior year. And somewhere between being invited onto the National Honor Society and the close of that, I hadn't kept up all the, the, uh, the requirements. And I was uh, graciously removed from the National Honor Society. And I knew how much, how proud my parents were for me being on that. So I didn't lie, but I decided not to tell them. And uh, I thought, no harm's going to be done. Everything will work out. Well, the thing is, at the end of my senior year, there's awards, uh, awards scholarship night for, my, for the seniors in my high school. And I had won uh, an award and a, couple scholarship, a few scholarships. And so I was going to attend. And uh, I thought, no big deal. But then I found out the National Honor Society was going to have special seating, actually. And they were going to be removed from the other seniors and, and, um, on the stage and, and, and sit apart. And I thought, oh, no. And so I tried to dissuade my parents from going. You know, it's not going to be a big event. You know, it's just going to be long and boring and, you know, just a long line of names and, and scholarships. And, but of course we want to go. Of course we want to see you. So needless to say, I kept up the charade and, and uh, they still, I still didn't lie, right? Uh, but I didn't tell them. Um, withholding truth is also lying. And so they came and they saw me got my awards and scholarships and they noticed that I wasn't sitting with the National Honor Society and needless to say it had a, a much worse effect than I had if I just told them, look, for X, Y, and Z, I'm, I, I'm uh, not on National Honor Society. I'm, you know, I'm sorry, Mom and Dad. Lying deadens our relationship. Here's another everyday illustration of that. A friend of mine was sharing with me the deadening effects of a, a white lie in his marriage. See, he often stayed late at work, and it beca- had become a bone of contention between him and his wife. And so they talked it over, and they found a good middle ground where he could put the time into work that he needed to, but he would also give enough time to his wife and kids. The deal they made was he can go into work as early as he wants. If he wanted to get there at 3.30 in the morning, fine, get to work that early. But at 6 o'clock, barring any extreme circumstances, he would leave and come home. Well, about a week into this, this uh, conflict resolution, my friend was about 20 minutes late. And this small white lie came across his lips as he entered the door and greeted his wife. Sorry I'm late, honey. I was stuck in traffic. Now, it's a partial truth. The traffic was heavier. It added about five minutes to his commute. But the truth is, he left 15 minutes later than he should have, making him 20 minutes late. She was like, oh, no, no, no big deal, honey, don't worry about it. And, and it could have just kept on going, you know, everything was fine. But the white lie, that little white lie, just ate at my friend to the point where he's confessing his sin to me, you know. See, whenever, even if it's a white lie, even a little fib puts a little hole or a little crack in a relationship, you know, the enemy will take a crowbar and work at it. 
Lying hurts our relationships. Lying affects other people's freedom. I was reading a book in preparation for the sermon on this topic, and the author, who is also a leading pediatrician, tells the story uh, of the effects of candy coating. She was, uh, one of her patients was a seven-year-old boy who had a brain tumor. And uh, she was really just feeling a lot of empathy for the family. The seven-year-old kid was just an outstanding boy, and the parents were just doing all they can. And so every time they had a consultation, she tried to lift them up a little bit. She tried to end with a little bit of good news. And she found herself candy-coating everything to the point where she was saying, I have good news. The brain tumor hasn't spread. But in reality, that was bad news. The, the brain tumor hasn't grown, but it should be shrinking because of the, the radiation and the chemotherapy, and it hasn't been shrinking. And so what happened was when the, the little boy passed away, the parents were in much more shock, much more unready for that because of the candy coating. Candy coating, deception. I remember not too, not too far back, we were in a big uh, conversation, a, a conversation with a bunch of couples. There was five or six couples there, and we we're all talking about why we, uh, how we planned our kids, you know, how many years we waited and, and why and how close together our kids were. And uh, when it got to, you know, my time to chime in, I said, yeah, we waited five years, which is not a lie. But you know, it's a half-truth. We wanted to have kids, we wanted to only wait two years, but it took us three more years to actually have a child. In fact, the doctor said we weren't supposed to be able to conceive on our own. But I didn't share that. Well, no, no, no harm done. It was just a casual conversation. But I found out later that a, a, one of the couples were struggling with in, infertility. And had I said, you know what, we wanted to have them at two years, but it took five years because we couldn't have them, that might have opened up an opportunity for us to, to show support, to show love. But it miss, I missed it because I, I gave a half-truth just to make it easy. Glossing over the truth, candy coating. Rob's God of the opportunity to work in people's lives. When we're vague, hide the whole truth. Always we break the, the ninth commandment. The final thing that lying does, it affects our relationship with others. It impinges on other people's freedom, but it also affects our self-esteem and our own spiritual relationship with God. I shared a couple ways I've broken the ninth commandment. I'll, I'll share one way that I, to keep, I keep this to illustrate it. Um, my point is, one of the things that I found, um, seminary, you'd think you'd find a lot of very clean, moral people, right? Well, there was one thing that tripped up a lot of seminary students at, at, um, at, at my seminary that I attended. I actually attended two, Gordon-Conwell and then Calvin Seminary. And at Gordon-Conwell, the professors were famous for giving reading reports. And basically, they were attached at the end, at end of the syllabus, and at the first day of class, they would give you the syllabus, and uh, 
they would say, okay, you need to read X amount of books. And um, then there would be a, a blank line, and you'd write how many pages you read or what percentage you read, and then you total it at the bottom. I read 90% or I read 900 pages or whatever. And this one particular class was um, cross-cultural pastoral counseling that I, that I took. And it was right before Laura and I got married, and so uh, we were ha- having a crazy um, you know, schedule and circumstances. And I, I, you know, I put all my effort into the term paper, and it was a big research paper. And... We were supposed to read a thousand pages for this class, and I had read 217 pages. Now I've heard, I've heard other students just fudge these reading reports. I actually heard another student say, "Well, you know what? Summer's right around the corner. I bought the books. I'm gonna read them. It's my major. I'm gonna get to it. So I'm just gonna put I read the reading." I couldn't do that. And so I'm going, I read zero of this book, 50 pages of this book, 100 pages of this book. I get down the bottom. Out of 1,000 pages as a blank, I read 217. This was worth 20% of my grade. I'm thinking, I was going into this with an A minus. I'm like, oh, a C minus. This is going to tank my GPA. So um, we get the grades back. And on the, the front of the grade report, it says A plus. And I'm thinking, Something's wrong. He mustn't have opened his eyes when he was reading my reading report. So I flip open the uh, comments, and in it is a note. And it says, Mike, I'm disappointed in the amount of reading that you did for my class. However, I'm highly encouraged with your honesty honesty and integrity. I'm giving you 100% of the grade. When we hit circumstances where telling the whole truth, the complete truth, is going to be awkward. It's going to make us look bad. It's going to bring up troubling circumstances. We're going to, everything in our body is going to say, fudge, gloss, candy coat. But when we do that, we're not following God's lead. We're not living according to God's design. There's no blessing in that. But when we take the high road, and follow that ninth commandment. There's freedom. Lack of integrity, inauthenticity, fakeness has a way of giving us guilt and shame and eroding our relationship with God. And this is not a pop psychology sermon. Up to this point, there are many pieces of the sermon that you may be able to find on the shelves of Borders or, or Barnes & Noble. But these books, however, won't give you the power source to live an honest life. Jesus hooks us up with the power to overcome our desires to hide, conceal, excuse, avoid the truth. And that power source is the cross. At the cross, Jesus gives us the power of forgiveness, the power of grace, and a connection to God and His Holy Spirit. Those things, grace, forgiveness, and God's Spirit, when fully absorbed, can break down any sin habit. When we realize that God fully knows us, fully knows our sins, and fully forgives us, when we realize that Christ is in us doing a new work, then even though we may have messed up, even though the truth's going to hurt, we can have the confidence 
to say, God has forgiven me. Who am I trying to please? Whose expectations am I trying to live for? The grace, mercy, forgiveness of the cross is the power source to enable us to live out the ninth commandment. Oh, I just realized I totally skipped over Psalm 15. But let me close. So you, don't, you don't have to turn to it. Let me close with Psalm 51, 6. Psalm 51, 6 says, Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. God desires truth. In fact, in I believe it's John 4 where Jesus says true worshipers worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The more we can take that high road of truth in our everyday interactions, not just the big decisions, but when we're face to face with people we don't like or circumstances that are uncomfortable, the more we live out that truth, the freer we will live in God's grace. Let's ask for God's help in doing that.